And now for the major announcement. Da, 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 da. Oh, Marcus, for years, listeners have been urging with us, pleading with us, begging us to run wellness and couch events in their own hometown and not just in Melbourne. Well, get ready, folks, because in 2018, there's not one, not two, but three major events coming your way. The Wellness Base Camp is our brand new one-day event featuring your favourite Wellness Couch podcasters in your very own home state. In 2018, we are coming to Brisbane, Adelaide and Kiama, just south of Sydney, for one inspirational day of health and wellness. Oh, incredible lineups to MP. We've got the Up for Chatters, we've got Joe Witten, we've got Fuad, we've got Kale Brock, Audra Starkey, the incredible Marcus Pierce, Brett Hill and so many more. Now seats are strictly limited to these events. The Wellness Base Camp is not a big Wellness Summit 1,000 people job, so do not muck around. No, you've got to get in quick, MP. The early bird two-for-one tickets are now available. Best Christmas present ever. To book your tickets and for all the information, head to thewellnessbasecamp.com. Thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. The Real Food Real is a fresh and educational podcast dedicated to your health. We get real on current research, debunk food myths, and educate you on how to just eat real food. Your host, Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist, is one of Australia's leading sports nutritionists, passionate about simplifying nutrition and addicted to coconut lattes, smoothies, and sweet potato. If you love the show, then please leave us a review on iTunes. Share the real food real with your friends and continue to spread the real food love. In episode 149 of The Real Food Real, we are joined by naturopathic doctor Lara Bryden. In today's episode, you will learn about hormones, healthy periods, and the truth about PCOS. Hi, Lara, and welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Really looking forward to exploring this topic with you today. Before we do, could you tell us a little bit more about your background to date? Yeah, sure. I'm a, I trained as a naturopathic doctor in Toronto, Canada many years ago, about 20 years ago. And since then, most of my career has been, most of my work has been in my hormone clinic in Sydney, where I work with, I have worked with over the last 15 years, PCOS, endometriosis, thyroid problems, those kinds of things. And all of that culminated in my book, Period Repair Manual, which I released about for the first time about three years ago, and then I've just released a new edition, updated edition with new information and new references. Okay, excellent. Lots of topics for us to explore together today. And I see from your book that you're not a fan of hormonal birth control. So what are your biggest concerns here? My biggest concern, quite simply, is that it switches off women's hormones, estrogen and progesterone, which are have many benefits for general health, including brain health, metabolism, insulin, muscle, bone health. And most types of hormonal birth control work by shutting that all down and instead giving some synthetic steroid drugs, which function as a kind of hormone replacement, not unlike you'd give to a woman after menopause, except that the hormone drugs that they're using are not as beneficial as our own human hormones. So I guess in a nutshell, my biggest concern is that hormonal birth control robs women of the benefits of their own hormones. Yeah. And it's a huge area, obviously. Um, A bit of a sensitive topic as well, as I'm sure you experience firsthand. From a family planning point of view or from a contraception point of view, what do we do? 
Yeah, so there's a number of different options currently, which I might, I'll, I'll run, I'll list a few of them now. And also, I'll just say, because I'm an optimist, I, you know, I believe in innovation and science, and I just am certain that um, we're going to come up with better options for both men and women. There's some new potential methods of birth control that are in the pipeline for men, which I think will be kind of a game changer, hopefully in the next few years. But in the meantime, in the interim, we have condoms, which kind of get a bad rap, but they actually are one of the older types of contraception and effective. And they, I include this, I mentioned this in my book, there's actually some new types of condoms that are more comfortable, that fit better. Like there's one brand that offers, I think it's like 80 or 90 different sizes of condom, depending on you know, the man's size. So it's one of my patient said to me once it's like yeah it's kind of weird when you think that it used to be kind of a one size fits all condom you wouldn't do that you know for shoes or any other part of the body <laughs> so I'm a fan of condoms um there's also the copper IUD for women which is the non-hormonal IUD which is probably one of the single most effective methods of birth control out there and has also had kind of a bad reputation which it doesn't deserve because the you know, modern evidence is that it's safe um, for all women, including women who have not yet had children. And then beyond that, there's all different methods of what's called fertility awareness method, which is a scientific method of tracking fertile days and then either abstaining or using a barrier method during those days. And there's, there's just so much new technology around this. There's a couple of um, new kind of computerized, digitalized ways of doing that, that um, are, have undergone clinical trials and been shown to be as effective as the pill or more, more effective in some cases. And then there's cervical cap. There's um, also, I'll mention here, there's a hormonal IUD, which, and that's, IUD is an intrauterine device. So quite different from the injection or the implant or any of those other types of hormonal birth control. The hormonal IUD, as I explained in my book, is actually the one that I consider I guess the lesser evil of all the types of hormonal birth control because it doesn't shut down hormones the way other types do. So it gives that women have that as an option. It can also, the hormonal IUD can also be helpful for controlling some difficult period symptoms, which we can talk about later today. Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of the copper IUD, can you start there and talk about some of the criticisms and what the science actually says? Yeah, yeah. There's a post on my blog called The Pros and Cons of the Copper IUD. So I provide some of the references, well, most of the references there. So it's, um, I guess the most common criticism is that it makes periods heavier. And that is true. So what I do is quantify that for the women that I speak to. So it makes periods about one third heavier than they are now. So for example, if if a woman, say, loses 30 milliliters of blood overall, of menstrual fluid over all the days of a period, which is a pretty common standard amount, then she would probably change from 30 to 40 milliliters, so a third more than what she had. So it's not crazy. Like if someone's already tending to heavy periods, then the copper ID is probably not a good choice. But certainly for women who have more moderate, lighter flow, it can still be an option. It can also cause some, it causes pain going in. So getting the, an IUD inserted is not a pleasant 
experience, but it's not surgery. It's done in the doctor's room. It's usually just with a local anesthetic or painkiller. It just takes a minute. One, I think the quote I use in my book is, you know, it's like a, it's like a pap smear, but a little bit weirder and more uncomfortable. Mm. <laughs> it's over quickly. Um, and then some women do get some period pain that's worse for the first few months. So that kind of puts it in perspective. And, you know, just to say, I'm not, I'm not a cheerleader for the IUD. I don't, I don't actually, it's not my first choice, but I do think it's important that women understand it for what it is and, you know, move on from some of the old, you know, stories about it that were not true. So how does it differ in terms of the hormonal side? Well, the copper IUD doesn't affect hormones at all. So that's the difference is it allows women to still make their estrogen and progesterone and get all the benefits of those hormones that I mentioned earlier. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. And what about the new methods that we see in terms of the scientific approach to fertility, or as you say, that, that tracking of one's natural cycle, um, what sort of devices are we using and, and talk more about things like um, body temperature and ovulation signs? Sure. So first thing to say is this method of fertility awareness method of birth control is different than the old style of what was called the rhythm method, which was or the calendar method, which was just simply using, looking at a calendar and thinking, oh yeah, I ovulate around here, so I'll avoid sex then. That doesn't work because ovulation does the release of the egg does move around a bit in a woman's cycle so you need some objective way of monitoring that and just to say at this stage which your listeners might not know but women are only we are fertile for only about six days out of every cycle and the rest of the time it's impossible to fall pregnant so which is quite different from a man who is fertile every day so for that reason, I actually think men should be the, one that are, the ones that are doing something about you know, avoiding pregnancy. But back to fertility awareness method, um, women have been doing this. If you're, if you're trained to do it, if you, you know, have learned from someone, to, then you can track two signs. One is cervical fluid or um, what's called fertile mucus type of discharge that um, increases with the amount of estrogen. And that can be a sign of impending ovulation. And then we, all of us get a temperature rise, a measurable difference in morning resting body temperature after ovulation. So with an ovulation thermometer, you can track that and you can observe that ovulation has occurred. And then it's therefore not possible to fall pregnant for the rest of that cycle. And that's just doing it manually with charts and you know, figuring that out. You can use an, a period app to help you do that. Um, but like I said, if you, you if you're going to if any of your listeners are going to attempt that as a way to avoid pregnancy, they really have to understand what they're doing and ha- and obtain some training online or at least read one of the books that are about that. Um, but if they don't want to go all that way and, and be trained in the method, then there are a couple of new shortcuts which I'm a big fan of. So there's only two at the moment devices that are certified for contraception for avoiding pregnancy that have undergone clinical trials. So one is um, a device called Daisy, which is a little computer thermometer. It's not cheap. It's about $400. And it, it, all you have to do is take your temperature and tell it when you get your period. And it does all the calculations based on its own algorithms and then gives you a you know, safe or unsafe days 
to an, I think, an efficacy rate of about 99.3% is what they claim, which is as good as the pill. And then there's another one called natural cycles, which I don't have as much experience prescribing, but um, it's, it's also out there. It's out of Sweden. It was, she was a um, astrophysicist. She's like this amazing, you know, scientist who just said, that's it. This is crazy. Like women's health, it's not that complicated. I'm just going to invent something <laughs> that so women can avoid pregnancy. And she just did. And that's, that's also been certified as a contraceptive device in Europe. Amazing. And I think it's so yep. good that we've got these other options now. And yes. I do want to speak to your point about educating yourself before you do move into a more um, natural method of tracking. But it, it's great that there's, there's the science there now as well. I think it needs to be taught from a young age and that we need to stop the, the Band-Aid prescription of, of the OCP. Absolutely. And because actually um, cycle tracking and knowing when you ovulate and where you are in your cycle is beneficial, even if you're not using that to avoid pregnancy. Mm. It also just helps you know kind of where you're at. It helps you predict exactly almost to the day when your period is going to come, which can be quite helpful. It helps you know if you are ovulating because a lot of women are not ovulating and therefore not making a very important hormone called progesterone. And they make, could go for years and not ever know that. And, of course, that also means they're not fertile, which can be, unfortunately, something that they don't discover until they actually try for a baby. Yeah, absolutely. So important. So one of the big reasons the birth control pill is used, at least um, initially, is to mask underlying symptoms like polycystic ovaries or endometriosis. I wanted to get your thoughts on that and then maybe some alternative options than a band-aid yeah fair enough yeah so the pill does mask symptoms for both those conditions i'll just say a word about the two conditions so pcos is primarily a hormonal condition of excess having too much male hormone and along with not ovulating regularly and so not making progesterone that's kind of what defines pcos endometriosis is a condition of pain, essentially. It's an inflammatory disease, whole body disease that manifests with, at times, quite severe pain and typically period pain, but it can be pain at all different times in the cycle. And the pill, by, by shutting down hormones, the pill can essentially mask the symptoms of both of those conditions. But the problem is that as soon as you then stop the pill, whether it's to just have a break from it or because you're having side effects like depression from the pill, which is quite common, or say you want to try for a baby, as soon as you stop it, those conditions have not gone away. In fact, you know, especially in the case of PCOS, they have probably been made worse by the pill. So you've been you know, pushed back even further than where you were when you started it. So for that reason, you know, I, I just my message to women, at least the message in my book, Period Repair Manual, is to as soon as possible, really, to start to look at finding another kind of solution, long-term solution. Yeah, I totally agree. So what about, um, let's explore polycystic ovarian syndrome. Can you teach us what that is, how it's diagnosed, and what is perhaps the treatment? Yep. Okay, it's an interesting condition in that it is about to have a name change and it really needs it because the name polycystic ovarian syndrome is extremely misleading. The condition, the hormonal condition is almost nothing to do with 
the ovaries themselves or any so-called cysts in the ovaries. It's really, which is, I know, surprising considering the name is polycystic. You would think that it's something to do with, with cysts in the ovaries, but it's not. So this is, um, brings us to the first point is that the condition cannot be diagnosed by ultrasound or certainly not by ultrasound alone. It's diagnosed, if it's diagnosed properly, it's essentially diagnosed on two points, either basically irregular periods, long cycles typically, or, or sometimes no cycles at all, but usually cycles that are like, you know, 50 or 60 days long and often not ovulating. So that would be the number one part of it. And number two is having high levels of male hormones that can, can be visible on blood tests or maybe just showing up as symptoms like facial hair or hair loss or sometimes um, breakouts, acne. But one interesting thing about all of that is that we, women tend to all those sorts of issues when they're younger anyway. So what we know now, and according to this new British Medical Journal article that I've been quoting quite a lot, scientists are kind of raising the concern that we just really need to be careful about diagnosing this condition in young women, especially teenagers, because that may just be something, a temporary state they're in that they're going to outgrow mm. anyway. And so if there's, and also that goes, that is also true for the number of follicles that are showing up on, on the ultrasound in their ovaries, because young women have ton, like, it's not uncommon for young women to have multiple, multiple follicles in their ovaries. Those are just, um, all that means, they're not abnormal cysts, they're just the eggs that are growing. And kind of they're growing and, you know, one might, one should become the dominant egg that then ovulates and then they all get reabsorbed and then the next lot comes. So those, those follicles are changing month to month and young women, teenagers have up to 25 of them at any one time. And that's normal. That's fascinating. Isn't the diagnosis for PCOS when it's over 20? Okay. Well that they've revised that. So for a teenager, Mm. It has to be over 25. And even then, um, an ultrasound is not enough. Yeah. Condition. An ultrasound, normal, someone with perfectly normal hormones can show polycystic ovaries on ultrasound, and it doesn't mean anything. And it will probably, if you were to ultrasound them again, you know, three months later, they'd look completely different and probably normal. So this is with my own patients. This, I'm constantly just saying, look, I don't care what your ultrasound. In the case of PCOS, in the case of this condition, you know, I'm not that interested in. So you're having a lot of people coming in with that PCOS label and it's an incorrect diagnosis. Yes. Wow. Yeah. That's insane. And, of course, and this same article, this British Medical Journal, what was basically, I, to paraphrase the article, I basically they're saying, you know, doctors, can you please stop scaring the bejesus out of women. Yes. Diagnosis. It's and a terrible away. thing. They go away thinking, they could just be normal. Their hormones could be normal. They could be young. And that's kind of why they're tending to some of these, you know, a bit higher male hormones. And then they go away thinking, oh my goodness, I've, I'm now infertile. I'm going to get diabetes. I'm going to, you know, all these I'm things. I'm going to get fast. I'm going to get facial hair. Yeah. yeah. They panic and it's like, no, 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 this is, this is, you know, all that said, step we have. To, I will acknowledge there are certainly yes, there are women out there that do have PCOS that do have the condition, the problem condition, with high male hormones and irregular periods, and that's very real. Mm. So I don't want to sound like I'm, you know, belittling that at all. It's uh, for me, I just like to treat it on an individual basis. Like just find out. I don't. I look way beyond the label of PCOS and actually look what is happening. Are the male hormones high? 
is she ovulating? And, and then go from there. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you for clarifying that because I'm sure there are many women that have unfortunately been given that label and at least now they know how to look at things differently and it has to be about that, that symptom picture about the individual. Yep. So what is the connection? You mentioned diabetes. I wanted to talk about the, firstly the relationship between PCOS and insulin resistance um, and and what then does that mean for the relationship towards type 2 diabetes? Okay. Big question. <laughs> yeah, no, so I'll just say there are lots of different things that can push a woman into this state of high male hormones and not ovulating regularly. So, well, there are a few different th- ways a woman can get there. And by ways, I mean, you know, what's happening with her body physiologically. So for example, some women end up with the PCOS diagnosis because their adrenal glands are making too many male hormones. And that sort of, that, that's why they're there. That's why they have that symptom picture. But, and there are some other examples. Coming off the pill can create, this is what I call post-pill PCOS, can push a woman into this symptom picture. But of all the things that can push a woman into the symptom picture of high male hormone and irregular ovulation, the most common one is something called insulin resistance. So for many women, if when they get into the pre-diabetic state of insulin resistance, the downstream effect from that on their ovaries and their, well, on their hormonal system is that they, yeah, they, they stop ovulating regularly. They start making more male hormones. So the, the in, it, in that way, in my book, I talk about insulin resistance as a major driver of the, ma- of the main type of PCOS. Um, it doesn't mean that every woman who qualifies for a PCOS diagnosis has insulin resistance, but about 70% of them do. And it's a, it's a driver, I would almost say it goes so far as to say a cause, not the full cause, but it's a big part of it. So that's why reversing insulin resistance or prediabetes can essentially reverse PCOS, which is great news, which is why you know, the doctors, the endocrinologists will give the diabetic drug, metformin, which actually helps quite a lot to bring periods back, get ovulation going. And the relationship with diabetes is that if, if a woman were to do nothing about her insulin resistance, her pre-diabetic state, and not change her diet or not take metformin or not do anything, eventually that's probably going to tip over into diabetes. Mm. Yeah. But that's yeah. for most women, that's not going to happen, especially the, the women listening to your podcast, because they're going to be changing their diet. And <laughs> Let's hope so. They're not going to end up there. <laughs> Absolutely. But yeah, that connection is pretty clear. So the insulin resistance is often the driver for PCOS then, um, and yes. not the other way around? Essentially, yes. Although mm. there is a little bit of vicious cycle does because the male hormones tend to impair insulin sensitivity. So you do get a bit of, um, I would say that insulin resistance is the main driver, but then once you get in that state, it's the state, it's the, the lack of ovulation, the, the state itself can worsen insulin resistance. So right. yeah, fascinating. And what about endometriosis? How does this differ? Like what is it clinically defined as? Um, and what do you see in clinic? Okay. It, okay, it's a completely different condition, so mm-hmm. we'll, we'll all just change directions now. Yes. <laughs> just, uh, leave yeah. the PCOS, although it's possible to have both PCOS <gasps> and 
no rule that you can't have both. Mm-hmm. They're, they're totally separate things. Endometriosis is an inflammatory disease. Like I said, it's a, its main symptom is pain. It affects about one in 10 women, which is much higher than most doctors seem to realize. It's, here's my message for your listeners. Period pain is not normal. Like, and a little bit of period pain, okay. Yeah, like if you just take a nerf in and just get on with your day and that's, you know, that's okay. Like I can, I would still say you probably don't have to suffer even that much, but anything beyond that is a sign of possible endometriosis. So I have another, there's a post on my blog called When Period Pain is Not Normal. It's not normal to cry and curl up, like curl up on the ground and maybe vomit and miss work because of period pain. Yeah. That, that means something is wrong. And unfortunately the, the average at the moment, the average time to diagnosis for endometriosis is 10 years, which means women keep going to the doctor saying, I'm in a lot of pain. And the doctor said, Oh, that's just how it is. That's period pain. You just have to put up with it. You know, your mom was the same. That's just how it's, how it is. That's your life. And meanwhile, they have what's actually quite a, serious condition endometriosis that probably needed surgery the the what the current one of the most important treatments right now is surgery which is obviously as a naturopath you know i i don't say that lightly but i do say that um surgery can be important it can help the pain considerably and reduce the disease burden and then beyond that there are natural treatments that can reduce the inflammation and hopefully prevent the condition from coming back but don't let your doctor just brush you off and say, oh, that's all fine. That's all normal. That level of pain is never normal. Yeah, I completely agree. So what do you think it stems from? Endometriosis. Mm. Okay, it's a, well, that's an interesting question. Okay, mm. well, um, this is a rather controversial topic. Okay. I will, I'm going to try to... Um, Be diplomatic if you need, but... Yeah, um, well, what's controversial is um, I've come at it. I've written a, a quite a bit about it being an immune disease, an inflammatory disease, potentially mm, mm. in the category of autoimmune disease, Wow! which not everyone has agreed with. Although this week there was a brand new paper giving more evidence that it's kind of in that category of disease. So an autoimmune disease is a condition where the body, the immune system sort of attacks itself and generates a lot of inflammation. and whether or not it auto, endometriosis qualifies as an autoimmune disease, the fact is it's an inflammatory disease. And as in terms of what's causing it, it's definitely going to be a combination of genetics because some women will just never get endometriosis. Like some women, you really have the genes for this sort of thing or not. And then beyond that, it's, I'm pretty confident it's probably a combination of exposure to environmental toxins, yeah. possibly in utero, which means when you know, when we were in our mom's wombs, which I know, again, makes it kind of hard to go back in time and fix that. Plus a combination of what's happening with the current immune system, including the gut bacteria. So I recently presented at a symposium in Sydney. My presentation was endometriosis and the microbiome, which is our gut bacteria, and looking at research linking, you know, abnormalities with the the gut bacteria translating into abnormalities with the immune system and driving the condition. So there's that side of things, but also the more conventional view is that the condition is also is driven by estrogen. And that is true. So that is definitely part of it. So once often it'll be quiescent 
women might have it even when they're born, like when they're children, but it doesn't usually flare up until they start menstruating and start getting estrogen. It's like estrogen is like putting for endometriosis. Estrogen is like petrol on the flames, right? Like it really gets it going. So that's why the conventional view is to shut down estrogen, either with the pill or with stronger drugs. And that is painful to me to kind of think about young women being subjected to that because we need, as I said, we need estrogen for lots of things for our general health. So my approach would be treat it as an inflammatory disease, reduce the inflammation. Yeah. And then you can still have some estrogen, but not, you know, not have the estrogen drive the disease. I love that. Yeah. Beautiful. And I'm sure we'll see much more research coming out. Um, I've read the paper that um, I think, as you said, came out recently about the autoantibodies and that similarity yeah. to autoimmune disease. Yeah. So yeah. I'm sure there'll be a lot more coming from that space in the near future. And I will put yeah. that paper in the show notes for those that are wanting to learn more. Um, there's obviously, you know, so much more we could cover, but I wanted to give you the space to, to share anything else in particular that you wanted to deliver uh, to our listeners, but then of course, um, direct us to where we can learn more about your newly released second edition of period repair manual. Yeah. Well, thanks, Deb. I, you know, I'll just say my, my main message in my work is that women's health and menstrual health is not as complicated as it's been made out to be. Like I think for too long, we've just been made to feel like it's all in the too hard box. And therefore that's why the doctor, that's why they just have to put us on the pill because there's nothing else that can be done. And that is just not the case. You know, our menstrual health, our hormonal health is an expression of our general health. In my book, I talk about it as you know, our monthly report card. Mm. So there's a lot we can learn from our period and there's a lot we can accomplish by just simple things, you know, changing the diet can do a lot for PMS, for example, for you know, having more regular periods. And I remember one of my favorite Amazon reviews that I ever received was just a young woman saying, you know, I never knew that what I eat can affect my periods. Like, why did no one ever explain this before? So I thought if my book, if there's nothing else than just to get that message out there, then I feel like my book has done its job. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. I absolutely love the message and I really appreciate your knowledge on this huge topic, but very fascinating. Yeah. And I highly encourage our listeners to learn more and and grab a copy of period repair manual. Could you direct us to your online home? Yeah. So um, I'm all in one place. I'm larabryden.com. And then I'm on social media, Instagram and Twitter and Facebook at Lara Bryden. And my book is Period Repair Manual. Make sure you buy the new one, the pink one, which is the second edition, which has, a, I, um, has some input from an endocrin- a Canadian endocrinologist, Dr. Professor Geraldine Pryor, who has been a big influence on me. So I was very honored that she helped me with this book. And it's available from Amazon. And I think in Australia, it's actually coming soon into bookstores, but it's probably also on Fish Pond and some of the other online booksellers it's on itunes kindle things like that beautiful head to the show notes team to learn more lara it was so lovely to chat with you thank you for coming on the real food real thanks for having me 
This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.